Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Tom, British and European officials have hailed progress in Brexit negotiations with the EU. We found that out in the last couple of days. British and European officials have hailed progress in these Brexit negotiations with the UK lead negotiator, Dominic Raab, predicting a deal on the divorce will be finalised by November 21st. Now, joining us now is Seema Malotra, a member of Parliament for the UK Labour Party and a member of the Select Committee on Exiting the European Union. Still with us as well is David Owen of Jeffrey. Mr. Malatra, thank you so much for joining us. What is your base case scenario of what happens in Brexit? Well, I don't believe that we're going to see a deal by the 21st of November. I think in terms of uh, Dominic Raab's prediction, that was already being backtracked. You know, we're less than 150 days from Brexit and there is still huge uncertainty, huge uncertainty about what we're going to have as the final deal, huge uncertainty, almost more importantly, about what's going to be in the political declaration, which is the forerunner to the future trade agreement that we will uh, have in the future framework with the European Union. And even um, of more significance as well to members of parliament, what kind of parliamentary process we're going to have, what meaningful vote there's going to be. And if our evidence to the select committee yesterday is anything to go by, this is more of a meaningless vote than a meaningful vote, with huge consequences for scrutiny and accountability of the government. Right. What, what, exactly what are you telling me? That we'll have an agreement and will banks have access? Are we, st- are we staying in, in the common market for now or what will a deal look like? Well, we don't know what the deal will look like. I think in terms of transition, we will be staying, staying within much of the framework that we already have, but we will be rule takers rather than be seated around the table and having a say in what happens. People are very concerned about what this could mean uh, if there is no deal as well for the UK. There is no guarantee there's going to be a deal that gets through Parliament. That could mean real challenges in terms of um, uh, difficulties with trade, delays at the border, questions about whether even basics like the European health insurance card would be available to citizens, Um, legal certainty around contracts. I mean, this uncertainty is not what people voted for. And it's incredibly concerning that we may have two cliff edges as well facing us, one at the end of March and then the second one at the end, end of our transition period as well. So the government has a lot to do in a very short space of time, both to get a deal, to have a deal that's going to win the confidence of Parliament and then to have us be ready for leaving on March the 29th. There are huge questions as well about whether we will be ready in terms of having passed the legislation that's needed with over 800 uh, statutory instruments still uh, set to go through. So So we've got a lot of work to do yet. So what does it mean for the Labour Party? Will they push for a second referendum if it's not the right kind of deal? Do you want elections if it's not the right kind of deal? Well, there are increasing calls for a second referendum and for the very simple reason that what's emerging and what the Prime Minister has been, uh, has, has now, um, is, is now doing in terms of being forced into a very difficult position 
is not what people thought uh, was going to happen as a result of Brexit. We, there is no way in which we are heading to be a more prosperous nation. In fact, every scenario under the government's own Brexit impact assessments suggested that we would be worse off. <coughs> under some scenarios, we'd be less worse off than others. So 2% less growth over right. 15 years as we stay in the, within the European economic area. So the reason why there's calls for a second referendum is because people are saying if, if, if what is now on offer isn't what people voted for, surely they should have a, a, a chance to express a point of view when it comes to the final deal, and particularly if that deal doesn't go through Parliament. The Labour Party has said that if there is no deal that's agreed by Parliament and if there uh, is no general election, which would be a, uh, our preference, so that we can have a different negotiating team that's really putting the economy first and not party interests first, which is what Theresa May has now become known for, then should the people have another say? But there is going to be an important question about what they have a say about. And there are increasing uh, calls as well from some in Parliament to say, look, if there is no end state and we are going to leave, then it's better to leave with uh, being right. a member potentially of something like the European Economic Area um, with, um, uh, with some of the, the benefits that go with that rather than leave with no deal, which would be catastrophic for our country and our economy. Seema, it's wonderful to speak to you, and I think I can speak for a global audience that finds the Labour Party of the United Kingdom an absolute mystery. You've provided leadership to the Fabian Society for years, and whether it's Bernard uh, Shaw or it's Harold Lasky or maybe even Ed Balls 1992, everybody wants to know how Labour gets back to what it used to be. Can Labour go back to the nostalgia of the Fabian Society, or does Labour have to find a new way? Well, there's one guarantee in politics, which is the past is never a determinant of the future. And what you've got to do is always be reinventing yourself to have your values in line with where modern situation seeks political solutions. And if you take the budget this week as one example and how Labour's responded, what we've seen is, I would quote it as less of the same, but certainly the same coming from uh, the Tory government with a, a sense of a failed economic plan. They failed right, on but how their you, own target. OK, I get and that. So but the I... Labour Party... It's, uh, yes, you're absolutely right. But for the Labour Party, mm -hmm. it is about having an economic policy that's going to respond to the challenges that Can we're Can Mr. Corbyn provide that? This is critical because Jeremy Cor Corbyn is, is miles from the Fabian Society. How do you get back to the values of another time and place? Well, you know, the Fabian Society is one of many voices. The Fabian Society was one of the founders of the Labour Party, just as the unions were, and the Cooperative Party was also very influential at that time. And, you know, what you have in the Labour family is a, a wide range of views, but set around common values <coughs> where we do believe in fairness and equality and in all of us playing our part for society uh, as a whole. And, you know, when we look at the budget this week, I'll take that as an indicator of where the Tory okay. policy is now going. They saw that they had failed in terms of their previous economics, uh, economic plans and strategy. They didn't tell you that. They pretended that there was going to be some sort of change, okay, but potentially uh, an end to austerity. But what they haven't got is a plan for investment in our country. This was a, uh, a budget that bought off some of their backbenchers and did enough just right. to get by for but the next six months. Town but to people, town. If, you, if you make this point, we won seats in the general election last year. And when I'm going around the country now, I'm seeing people increasing dissatisfied with the Tories. Okay. Not only do they not have a plan for Brexit, they don't but have a plan for the... Then here's the key question, Seema. That's, that's absolutely correct. But the key question is, who do they go to 
if they don't go to the Tories. As an MP of the Labor Party, does the Labor Party need a new cogent view with the nostalgia of your Fabian society and onto something new? I mean, I don't see a cogent Labor voice in this Brexit debate. I don't know if it's about um, a sort of romanticising the past because the, it was very different at that time. I do think it is about saying what are our solutions for the present. You know, we founded the National Health Service. Uh, we brought in the minimum wage. We invested in early years. We saw huge growth across our country and more inc an increase in in uh, equality between our regions as well. We've seen inequality rise hugely. We've seen child poverty rise significantly under the Conservatives. I see it in my own constituency. People want to know that they've got access to good jobs. They want to know they've got investment in education. They want good prospects for their children. This is the first generation where children are set to do worse yeah. than their parents. Now, those are the things, home ownership uh, or a secure place to live, decent education. And See that's where the Labour Party's answers are what people are now responding to very, very strongly. Are you frustrated that many people and probably many voters still don't 100% know where Labour stands on Brexit? Sorry, I couldn't hear your question. Am I frustrated with... The question is, are you frustrated that the voters don't understand where Labour is on Brexit? Uh, I do think we've got to be clearer about that. You know, we had a big debate at party conference, which was just last month. And in that, we moved the position of the party in favour of a second referendum as well, under the circumstances where there isn't a deal that's agreed by Parliament and also where there isn't a general election. Now, I have called since the week after the referendum, in fact, that, you know, from, from my personal point of view, thinking about the economy and what I think is right for our country, we should be seeking to stay in the single market as far as possible. I do think that we need to have greater controls over freedom of movement and that's something which the EU can deliver if it chooses to. There is no legal reason why it couldn't. It's a political reason. And I do believe that we need to stay within a customs union or the customs union so that we have that uh, security uh, for Northern Ireland as well and, and Ireland. Yeah. Now, the, the, the reason why Ireland is such an issue is because the border in Northern Ireland won't just be a border between the Republic and Northern Ireland, it will be a border between the European Union and a third country. That is fundamentally different. And we have to accept a responsibility in that and say, well, look, if we don't want this to have a negative <coughs> impact on the economy uh, and the free flow of trade uh, and, and goods and supplies mm -hmm. uh, between the Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, we have to right. say what's the solution for the UK now, as a whole. And that's why I do think that the customs union has got to be we, a big part of that. We must leave it there. Uh, uh, Seema Mahatra, uh, a member of parliament for the Labour Spirit of Discussion on the Future of the Labour Party as well. Thank you so much. So the sleepy days of 2017, well, they are long gone. There was the vol shock of February, and then there was that ugly October. A warm welcome to November. Is there more to come? Steve Whiting dropping by the studio. City Global Chief Investment Officer joins us now. Good morning to you, Steve. Good morning. So is there more to come, Steve? Well, look, the way the market dropped so sharply and is rebounding so sharply tells us that we're still in a volatile environment. 
And that environment is one where you can still have fairly big drawdowns and it can be unclear that we're in an exact bottom. You don't do that in a matter of a couple days. But I do think that the absolute declines that we've seen in U.S. shares, uh, and particularly global shares, um, really points to a larger slowdown than is likely for 2019. And if we simply know where interest rates are and get through a few other issues, obviously trade has been a major, major surprise for markets in 2019. But I don't think that we can really shock markets again with things like tariffs. You know, this expectation is high and embedded in the marketplace. So I think that we recover from here. I think that that's the story, you know, independent of uh, the volatility continuing in the near term. So we had a big vol shock in February. So are you essentially saying that the playbook, the post-February playbook is still intact? Well, if you think about uh, what had happened in February, we were in a strong earnings period. Uh, we were about to rebound uh, the March-April period. The notion of a larger global trade war was first initiated in the marketplace. We yeah. saw, for example, you know, the policy uncertainty indices related to trade just absolutely surge from nowhere. Shouldn't have been nowhere. Now, I don't think that shock can hold us back again. What I do think is that we will expect a slower pace of earnings gains. Just you know, three consecutive quarters, well above 20%, that doesn't continue. But I think, again, the combination of a market that is down, uh, one in which we have a good deal of trade worry priced in around the world, and uh, a good, decent earnings gain still ahead of us at a slower pace is enough for us to uh, to make a recovery from You've him. drawn a clear distinction, though, between peak earnings growth and peak earnings. Absolutely. And yes, I think decline in growth. Because a lot of people are sort of confusing the two at the moment. When they come on programs like right. this, I hear a mix of the two. Absolutely. And you just see it all the time. So, so that's the thing. If you want to say that share prices need to drop in level because they embedded too strong a growth rate, you can do that. But if we're still going to grow, eventually you arrest those declines in prices. You know, and that's my point. I Steve, think that there's enough inertia for us to continue to grow earnings in the coming year, both in the U.S. and the and the rest of the world. It, was, some, it was somewhat interesting in the last month that actually we finally saw some cracks in credit in high yield, in triple Cs, where the resiliency has been through much of 2018. What do you take from that? And is that a sign of fragility? The biggest drag on high yield markets, the biggest drags on credit has been on the rate front. You know, again, absolute spread levels. Uh, are low. I do think that you're going to see bank credit uh, continuing to be fairly robust. Um, I look at credit as more or less a coincident variable. I think that's happening from the Fed. And what's happening in the yield curve is a real leading variable. So I think that we're going to see as equities recover some, as growth expectations probably stabilize. And the big uncertainty here, you've got to admit, is trade that away from all of that, uh, we're going to see uh, credit is not really going to be a big inhibitor of, of equity markets. We're just not going to get any push well, from credit. What have we equities. done with equities then? I, I mean, I saw a nice matrix from uh, a gentleman in Edinburgh yesterday, which was get out of small caps, get in large caps, do this, do this, do this, do this. What's the do this, do this, do this for City Private Bank? Well, look, since mid-year, we took down our absolute risk budget. Uh, some of the emerging markets that we might rebound very nicely in, a, in very high beta markets, for example, uh, Eastern Europe, you know the ones. Um, these are markets that were underweight. 
And even in a rebound, we're just not going to put a lot of money there. Uh, we're going right. to take so take our risks in Asia to a certain extent, and we're going to have a small overweight. And uh, as we mentioned on television, you know, we now have an underweight in U.S. small caps, right, for the first time in this cycle. Now, I don't think performance is going to be that bad, but I think when we look out, you know, we're not going to want to have a massive, massive amount of risk in that. But it's still a positive equity environment anticipated, at least for 2019. Well, what, what are earnings grow at? Because... Yeah, I get the idea that we're phasing out the tax cut. You can argue if there's a persistent value to it. Good morning, Mr. Cudlow. Or or if there's a one-off event or a two-quarter event. You okay over there, John? I'm doing okay. You were out trick-or-treating until like 10 o'clock. I'm, I'm hanging in there for you. I was having oysters at Eli's at 91st and Madison, and you went by me. You look so good as quantitative tightening. Yeah, thank you. It was great. I appreciate that. You, you just, you know, he Look as good as him. quantitative tightening. He went as quantitative tightening. It was and, great. And then went to bed with lemon and honey and some hot water my suit is quantitatively tightening as i get fat yeah, yeah well, no i went as quantitative easing because that's what's happening but but what what is the profit model for it i mean you're one of the best i know yep. at gaming earnings what's the game forward so if you take a look at the level of production and demand in the united states and you say we can quibble in the third quarter uh, we pulled in a lot of imports ahead of tariffs we built some inventories on the external side. Um, we have, you know, some modest weakness in some of the cyclical areas in housing and autos, but sort of the production level uh, and the cost problems that we have, yeah. you know, are still not large enough to completely erase the inertia we have up in profits. Steve, this conversation is way too sophisticated for this program. What are you doing? I'm waiting for Steve to end on profits because what he says is really important no, on profits. You, still high. How about Amazon. that? To, just so everyone knows, Tom Keane has an Amazon a box. Prime box. What's in it? I don't know. Maybe you knew it. Do you know two of the kids' laptops have broken in the last right. 48 hours? Why are you opening your post I, in here? Oh, look. What have you got? Oh. What is it? Anthony. Anthony from Sparta. What is it? It's pink, whatever it is. It, it's, John, it's going to bring a tear to your eye. I'm what trying to figure bought? out how to open it. Have you bought this or is, is no, this I a gift? No, I didn't guess? buy this. This is some, it came from. This is a gift? Anthony from Sparta. It's a breakfast set for you and me inside the studio. You've got a child's breakfast set. It is. It's a got tea set for young girls. Child's breakfast it, set. It's so you and I can dine in style. I don't think this in is for me. Who, did, who gave you this? It said, came from Amazon, you know, Anthony from Sparta. It's, it's this good. is a Steve, children's like eggs? breakfast set. Yeah, we can put it right here. You like that, John? Steve, I and can two shades of pink. I, I can only apologize to my colleague. I honestly, how much did you drink yesterday? Well, I didn't. I didn't. You did and you didn't. Did you drink? Actually, can we say good morning to Candy on Madison? Went in huge John Farrell fans. Oh right, the diner. They, yeah, yeah, yeah. They yeah. they came in and you know we we're having a beverage of our choice. And can, candy diners. We say good morning Lex. to those up Madison Avenue. It's that not listen on, on every Madison. morning. It's on Lexington Avenue. On Lexington. No, this Avenue, is K and D. Diner. This is a, a beverage store. Oh, K and D is the liquor yes. store. Yeah, yes, okay. you're familiar with that. Yeah, of course are you? I am. Yes. <laughs> yeah, they K got the feral wall yeah, on, on the right the side. Store on on ninety four. Yeah. I walked in as quantitative easing, and they said good morning. You know, they they they. You know, said thoughts to you. Yeah. I think you like pay the rent. 
I, I like the Amarone yeah. in, the, um, in the top left of the store, in the left corner. The Amarone? Yeah, what what yeah, is the Amarone? I don't know Amarone. It's, it's, it's a very good red wine. Yeah. I'll buy you a bottle. Steve Wine is going, why are we having breakfast I, in the studio? I don't, I don't know what's going on in this show. Well, this is a lot easier than talking about markets and whether it's rates of growth <laughs> or slower rates of growth. Yeah, but, uh, I mean, but the cacophony of October and John, we got a salvation day yesterday, right? Seriously. They had a couple of, that was the first two-day gain on the S&P 500 yeah, okay. since September. What, what do you do into November, into December, as Steve Whiting writes his year-end report? So let's just remember first that knowing what's going on in the market now often tells you very, very little about what is a good investment. What is a good longer-term holding? And your uh, listeners really, really should decide on whether they're trading this or they're investing in this. Now, my point of view here is that panic is unnecessary, that the economic outlook will again, is not gonna yield eternal growth, uh, but it's good enough to yield us further profit gains and the constraints that we have on the interest rate front are well, not enough to <clears throat> knock us over. They're not, gonna, they're not gonna compete with equity. Steve Whiting, thank you so much, oh, just wonderful. Can I just say it? Granger's causality. Clive Granger was a British giant of mathematics. He ended up in, of course, one of the climbs of the United Kingdom, the University of San Diego, University of California, San Diego. Won a Nobel Prize for Garch with uh, Robert Engel and all that. Okay. Does wage growth in a better economy cause better productivity or does better productivity cause better wage growth? The chicken and the egg of economics. Yeah, exactly. And I, I'm sorry, there it is. Better productivity with a revision up for previous productivity. It's interesting. Ahead of payrolls tomorrow. Do you want to bring in our guest? No, no. You're, you're like eating into important you're, time you're like someone what? really important. Okay, but West Ham? Is that, what do we start well with? Well done. East do, London, did I guess you, right? You start with East London's Okay, finest. please, start in with this. West Ham, Steve Major, HSBC, Global Head of Fixed Income Research. Steve, <clears> I'm <throat> sure that most of our listeners want to talk fixed income. Um, mm. But let's start with West Ham. How are we doing? There's a lack of productivity there. Yeah. Certainly last night. So, so this is interesting because uh, productivity must be going up in the US economy and in the UK economy, by mm -hmm. the way, because uh, if wages are going up, what, 3.5% and the Fed's preferred measures of inflation are all stuck around two, and frankly, the, the Fed's deflator has been falling all year, it's, yeah. it's even less than that. So if you, if you assume two and 3.5 on wages, then someone's working a bit harder. Right. <laughs> if the hours haven't changed. I've got like five. We could go for two hours yeah. easily nonstop yeah. with you on this fascinating fixed yeah. income. Let us go to what we just saw with the Bank of England. You are the arch call of lower interest rates. I think everybody's sobered at the rate stability we've seen through this ugly October. Do you maintain a low rate call? Oh, totally. The, the latest asset allocation published yesterday was called a bucket of cold water. And so... Yeah, I don't know if that works in American English. It kind of does. Stick, it worked it? last night. We went. I went as quantitative <laughs> easing for Halloween. John went for quantitative tightening, and he threw a bucket of cold water on me after yeah. was it the fifth Guinness? Yeah, yeah. So you so you get it. The point is, October was a bucket of cold water for the S and P and for risky assets around the world. The last few months have been a bucket of cold water. The point is, is that yields in Europe are lower than where we started the year for Germany and France. Yeah, but not it. 
Italy, by the way. <clears throat> the UK yields are low. Um, China yields have been falling all year. Japan's doing nothing. So um, the US is the outlier. And I'm happy to sit here and talk about US treasuries as well. But the point is that those yields look too high, given what's going on in the rest of the world. Pretty interesting, though, that we get a bucket of cold water on US equities and the US 30-year yield actually climbs through October, Steve. Yeah. Why? Well, this didn't happen in February, because in February, when we had a wobble on the Chinese, Hong Kong and US exchanges, the treasuries rallied. So you had a risk off. <laughs> Money went from equities into bonds. This time it didn't happen. And so the whole risk parity framework if you like, seems to be unravelling. And, and look, this shouldn't be a complete surprise. If you have unconventional policies, you should expect unconventional outcome. So I'm worried about investment-grade credit, for example. I'm worried about equities. I'm worried about emerging markets. It doesn't seem so far, or certainly in the last few weeks, that the money's going into treasuries. doesn't mean to say it isn't going to. I mean, let me ask you, what do you get on your bank account here? Not a lot. Uh, assuming you've got any money in the account. Yes, there's some right. money in so there. So what do you get? Nothing. 10 basis points? Um, if you're lucky. How much can you get for one month on treasury bills? You would get a couple of percent. You get 2%. Yeah. You can get 3% okay. to go a bit further <clears throat> out. With, within your fixed income game of, of, of trying to figure out what full faith and credit's going to do, yeah. what, what corporate's going to do, what high yield's going to do, you're now dealing with central banks with a date calendar, which I've never seen, where they're gaming policy out to the end of summer 2019 yeah. or late 2019 to a grizzled pro like you, Steve mm. Major right, Steve Major wrong. What does that mean to you when you see uh, Draghi and Carney doing that? Well, with Draghi, uh, I think the market is, is collectively uh, giggling, laughing at this idea that wages are going up and therefore CPI is going to rise. I mean, the causality you mentioned before, Tom, could be the other way around. It could be headline into core. That tends to be how it works in Europe. You get prices higher in the shops and people ask for higher wages. Yeah. But anyway, the point is, is that he thinks inflation is going up, but the market doesn't believe it because I just told you yields are going down. And um, look, think, think this through. If the ECB thinks they're going to hike next year or the year after, mm. so many things have to be aligned. The stars have to be aligned in such a way that, first of all, Brexit's no problem. Secondly, Italy is no problem. Thirdly, the US presumably isn't easing at some point in the next couple of years. Uh, then there's the data, inflation and reactivity data. Frankly, there's a lot of stuff there that's got to be lined up. Uh, strikes me as it's not a high probability that the ECB can manage no. a normal tightening cycle to run a marathon. Now you are cut and chiseled, but of a certain uh, vintage. How do you run a marathon now versus how you would have run it 10 years ago? It's a good question. I, I ran five last year and I've run about 50. And I, I was running them 30 years ago. I ran New York last 20 years ago. So a short, okay. short answer to the question is I do a lot less running because I'm, I'm 55 next year. So I do a lot less running than I used to. I probably do half of the mileage, but I do a lot more. To get ready and all that, you just I do, do a lot less. more, a lot more conditioning, a lot more strength and stretching. So it's a lot less right. pounding the streets. How is the New York Marathon different from all the other? I mean, Boston has uh, yeah. that terrible hill in Newton at the end. Yeah, uh, but but there's, there's got to be yeah. something unique here. What is uh, unique? I've about I've New done York? I've done them all. That that. It's, it's dead straight from Staten Island until you get to the park and you turn around, more or less. Mm. So it's a straight marathon. It's got the bridges. I think there's five bridges. And there's a lot of concrete. 
So uh, as, you a, get shin splints? as opposed to tarmac, you, you, have, you run that risk. I mean, I'm not looking forward to that because I know my legs are going to get a pounding. But yeah. it, elsewhere in the world, like yeah. Ber Berlin or Athens, uh, London, is mainly tarmac. Uh, but here it's pavement. I know Paula Radcliffe complained mm -hmm. about it when she went for the record. But anyway, I'm looking forward to it. Let's hope, yeah. let's hope it's not too hot. What's even greater, yeah, the heat is an issue. It was, of course, lovely here uh, today and for Halloween yesterday. That's a TCS New York City Marathon. Tata Consultancy Services uh, uh, behind the force behind that uh, as well. And again, Steve Major with us today, of course, running the New York Marathon and also the marathon of when rates will go up. It's the great wrong call. Yeah. You're in a camp with a select few. Shout out to Gary Schilling, yeah. uh, who, who's been there as well. And still, rates are going higher. Yeah, as you see, the, no forecast is actually wrong until you get to the forecast horizon. But granted, Tom, yields have been going up this year. I forecast they'd be going down. Um, I'm still forecasting they're going to go down. And I think that you know, 10, 11 years into recovery, six years into reducing the long dot, four years into tightening, with a Fed, right. a Fed chair doesn't know where the stars are, doesn't strike me that they're going to accelerate from here. What does a pro like you think about the stars? I mean, economists can talk theoretical about the stars. Vice Chairman Claret, of course, with prodigious ability in DSGE, dynamic, stochastic, yeah. Yeah. general equilibrium theory. You've got to go out to HSBC clients yeah, yeah. and say, here's how you can plan. Yeah. It's a big difference. Right. So with the stars, nobody knows uh, with any certainty until afterwards. We know what the real natural rate of interest is. It's not a new thing it's an 18th century concept from from Wixor actually that's what the real natural rate of interest is to, to, to me one percent real rates in the US is going to be sufficient given this amount of debt and given where we are in the cycle and we're sort of getting towards one percent one percent real and I'm looking at this in terms of modeling this mm -hmm. I, I, I think it's difficult to find any model with these unconventional policies but think about prospect theory think about interesting uh, yeah think about loss Kahneman of and Tversky yeah and yeah think about um, uh, investor behavior uh, when you're in the domain of certain losses which is when you had minus right. minus two real yields ten years ago compared to today where you've got a certain gain in real right. yield terms, presumably you're more cautious. Steve Major, critical question, and this is for Global Wall Street listening worldwide. If you're going to look at a real rate study, where on the x-axis do you look at that? Are you looking at a two-year rate? Are you looking at three-month LIBOR? Yeah. Or do you where, where's the most advantageous study point yeah. of real rate real, uh, real rate dynamics? That's a really good question. You've got to go to the five-year point if you want to get the a, belly. If right. you want to get a cycle <clears throat> number. So so we think about where will the five-year rate be in five years' time? Currently, the five-year U.S. Treasury five-year five-year five. Year forward. Exactly. Got it. Yeah. So in the U.S., the Treasury is at three thirty-three forty. That's the five-year rate. The Fed says they're going to three three and a quarter. Some people in the Fed say, say they're going to go higher first, which to me is ludicrous. I mean, the idea that you're going to over tighten so you can cut seems to me some kind of nonsense. But but if it's so obvious, right. you're going to hike four <clears throat> times and cut twice. Just hike okay. twice. When you <laughs> and Ben Lazler, your equity strategist, when you get together, how do you dovetail Steve Major fixed income theory 
with Ben Laidler equity yeah. theory. Well, I think it works quite well because for him, he'll take the longer-term rate forecast as his input into his dividend yield calculations and his assumptions. Which says we got to be yeah. in equities. If, yeah. I, if I believe in a Steve Major world, I'm going to stay in equities, right? It, it does. If your valuations are, are fair, though, the thing is, Tom, is, is are the valuations fair? Because you've got to add on top of this, not just the interest rate level, it's the withdrawal of liquidity. Now, you mentioned quantitative tightening before. Mm-hmm. There's 50 billion dollars per month of reduced balance sheet the rest of the world is shifting the impulse on the qe so it so the rates are one thing for the mm. equity market forecast right. but what about the liquidity that pumped up the prices right. of those stocks i have to ask one more question the yeah. chronic nature of negative interest rates in europe yeah. what is the price well we're seeing actually a sort of slow zombification of some parts of uh, the industrial base um, it it strikes me that 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 maybe is very difficult to remove them that, mm-hmm. that that's the other the other thing i mean how do they remove negative right. rates very quickly um there's there's a there's a lot of thought behind the negative rate policy because it is linked to the forward guidance and the asset purchases. It's, it's extremely potent, but the circumstances are never going to be right to reverse them. Mm-hmm. But th- this is this is the thing. I mean, how do you know when it's safe to well, actually remove them? You're going to go off to talk to John Farrow on one of his other properties. We need to say thank you, and also we're hoping for 42 degree weather with no wind, <laughs> yeah. no rain, no that 42 how, degrees for the marathon. How about a following wind? <laughs> okay, a following wind is. <laughs> Well, Stephen Major with HSBC. He is in New York, of course, with HSBC clients uh, coast to coast and, of course, to uh, run in the TCS New York City Marathon as well. Pim Fox and Tom Keene, thank you for being with us. And if you're a bit confused or intrigued by the election always good to speak to greg Vellier of horizon investments greg david wasserman writing for the cook political report with a at the margin nudge he looked at six races and he nudged it a little bit democrat is that where you are are you nudging on a thursday towards the democrat or democratic party yeah a little bit tom good morning i think that you know, maybe the Democrats pick up 28, 30, 31 seats in the House. That's enough. They only need 23. Yeah. But in the, in the Senate, there's been a real momentum shift. I feel pretty confident the Republicans not only will hold on to the Senate, but they're going to gain a seat or two. Where is turnout? I, I think with all the polls, I still can't tell on both sides who's going to actually darken the door of the voting booth. Who is it? Well, traditionally, it's people who are angriest, and I think the angriest people are Democrats, uh, suburban women who don't like Trump and want to send a message. But it's impossible for poll takers to predict. I mean, they'll tell you in private that they may get their demographic mix correct, but they can't quite figure out turnout. Greg Vallier. As someone that previously worked at the Schwab and was the director of research for the Charles Schwab Research Group, you're great at connecting political events to financial outcomes. And you've described a red-hot economy and rising interest rates. Do you see President Donald Trump getting into a real public slanging match with Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell? 
Absolutely, Pam. I think that's a real risk for the markets as the year unfolds. I still think we get a rate hike in December, a couple more, maybe three next year, and Trump will tweet. I mean, if Trump's angry now, just imagine what he'll be like 75 basis points higher. All right. So let's imagine that it's 75 basis points higher. Is President Trump already running for the 2020 election? Absolutely. I don't think there's any doubt. He's got his foils. I mean, nobody plays against foils better than this guy. I mean, he's got a foil in uh, Paul Ryan. He's got a foil in Jerome Powell at the Fed. So, yes, he is running. And, you know, I've been saying in all my talks lately, I think he's the favorite to win re-election. What do you believe is causing the market volatility that we've experienced in the last month? Well, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of villains here, you know, whether it's people getting too euphoric toward the end of the summer, uh, whether it's the, the Fed. I think Powell was a little indiscreet when he said we're not close to neutral yet. I, I don't think he should have said that. Uh, but there are so many other factors. And I, I would also yeah. add, you know, it looks like things could get even worse before they get better on trade. Greg, within this is five days to the election. What's the plan right now for the big money? I I love how yesterday everything got quiet. Obviously, all the pros working 24-7 at the margin. What's the value margin for the pros getting through the weekend, getting to the Sunday talk shows, including Thank You, Face the Nation, CBS, for joining us every Friday. But what's what's the value to-do list for pros right now? Well, I think for the pros... The, the outlook is surprisingly sanguine. Uh, it's in the market that the House flips to the Democrats. It's in the market that the Senate gets a little more Republican. I think the big story, and the reason why, Tom, I don't think this election is a huge deal for the markets. The big story is that even if the Democrats took both houses, Trump's veto was good. So any fear that Trump's economic agenda would get undone, yeah. we'd kill the, kill, kill the tax cuts, it's not going to happen because he'd veto it. I mean, this is fascinating, Pim. It's the first time I've ever heard anybody talk about Mr. Trump with a veto pen in hand. I mean, give us a clinic on that, uh, Greg, right now. I mean, presidents are reluctant to veto, et cetera, but this is an original president, isn't it? Original is an understatement. couple points. Number one, Tom, I do think that uh, Trump will play against a more liberal House that may talk about impeachment. But I, I think the big thing for investors to remember is that you need 67 votes in the Senate to override a veto. There's not going to be 67 votes. I think the Republicans will actually add seats in the Senate. So I think the Trump agenda is safe for two more years. Greg Vallier, who in the White House do you believe is making economic policy? Uh, Donald Trump. Uh, there may be a few others, maybe Larry Kudlow, although I think a lot of the policies go against what Larry has said for his entire career. Uh, it, it's, it, it's, at the end of the day, I think you've got to say it's Trump. And um, right now, I think he's thinking yeah. exactly what you guys said. What's going to happen in 2020? Well, we know that there's going to be a G20 meeting in Buenos Aires. Yeah. And we also know that President Donald Trump is going to meet the Chinese President Xi Jinping. In fact, Larry Kudlow coming out just now and saying that the meeting would be very formal. Do you believe anything will be resolved at that meeting? 
Well, that's a key issue for the markets, obviously, November 30, December 1. So I would think that the personal chemistry between Xi and Trump might get resurrected a little. Maybe there's a nice photo op. They might even agree to resurrect the talks between the two countries. But any hope that there would be a dramatic breakthrough in Buenos Aires, I think that hope is unrealistic. And now, folks, we move forward with Greg Villiers, as we can only do with a man from New Hampshire. Greg, it's five days to the midterms, and your entire note today is out exactly two years in one week. How many Democrat candidates are there right now? You know, I got to say, Tom, it could be 25. It's a huge list. I mean, if, if, if your top three is Biden, Bernie, and Elizabeth Warren. I mean, there's a lot of room for other candidates who maybe are uh, a little younger, maybe got some fresh blood. And there is so, I, I, we'd be on until noon if we talked about, you know, all the other like people, that. Cory Booker, yeah. Kirsten Gillibrand, uh, Amy Klobuchar, obviously Kamala Harris. The list goes on and on and on. But I, I do say, and some people don't like me, me saying this, I do say that as of now, Trump is the favorite. He's easily going to win the nomination in that party. And I don't see anyone right now who's a clear, likely opponent who could beat Trump. Having said that, do you believe that the Democrats have a coherent plan? Well, there's a lot of friction. I mean, you've got what I call the Bronx socialists, and you've got the old guard and people like uh, Joe Biden, and, and the party is divided. I think they need to resolve this. I mean, the, the young Bronx socialists have some very seductive ideas, but they can't describe how they would pay for these ideas. So that, that's going to be a big problem for them in describing how we can get this done without confiscatory taxation. Hey, Greg, thank you so much. Greg Villiers with a nice update there on what we may gaze at uh, next Tuesday. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.